Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. If you're not familiar with us, we are an independent general interest bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Right now, we're open for in-store shopping 11 to 7 weekdays and 10 to 8 weekends. We ask that you wear a mask and socially distance and sanitize your hands. We also offer curbside pickup those same hours if you would prefer a contactless book shopping experience. You can always give us a call uh, at 323-660-1175 or shop online 24-7 on our website, skylightbooks.com. All right. Well, today I am... I'm honestly a little starstruck um, because we have two fantastic international authors joining us today. And, you know, I don't often um, talk about the course of this wild, wild year um, and my first year as the events manager and all of the different things that we've done to try to adapt to it. But today I wanted to just say a few words because I I am so honored to be hosting this conversation. and you know, it's been really difficult to think about what events and the literary community will look like um, during our pandemic times. And I've found that in hosting the podcast, I've had access to a whole new vision of, of that um, and ways of building connections and community that you know, don't revolve around the physical space of our bookstore. Um, so uh, you know, it's been really wonderful not only to offer this, uh, this space for big name authors like the two we're hosting today, but also for smaller authors, you know, people who might not get uh, an in-person event in normal times, people who are just coming out with their first books on small presses, um, people who are doing work in the community, teaching writing um, in public libraries or in old folks' homes. Um, so it's been, it's just been really wonderful to to kind of broaden my own definition of, of literary community and think about events as a more um, all-encompassing space, a space where uh, we can really foster the kind of community we want to see coming out of this pandemic. So I wanted to thank you all so much for listening. I really, really appreciate your support. We all do so much. We really could not have gotten through this year without the support of our customers um, and particularly our, our local community in our neighborhood. So thank you again for being there for us and for affirming the work that we're doing. Um, It really means the world. All right, so today we're going to be talking about the new novel, A Country for Dying, which is by the Moroccan author Abdella Taya. 
he's going to be in conversation with the wonderful Colm Sabine. And I want to just say a few words about the novel. Um, this is a, an exquisite novel of North Africans in Paris by one of the most original and necessary voices in world literature. It's out now from Seven Stories Press, translated by Emma Ramadan. Um, over the course of three parts and six chapters, Taya introduces us to the inner lives of four immigrants in Paris as they contend with their present realities, the past they are trying to flee, and the dreams they still hope to indulge. Um, I really loved this quote from the novel. Um, so Taya writes, so many people find themselves in the same situation. It is our destiny to pay with our bodies for other people's future. I think right now we are feeling this line very acutely here in the US, um, you know, not only in our immigrant communities, but also in our poor communities and our rural communities. Um, so many people are paying with their bodies for the future right now. And I think this novel is incredible and well worth discussing. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, before I bring our authors on, I want to read their bios and, and let you get to know them just a little bit more. All right. In 1973, Abdallah was born in the public library of Rabat in Morocco, where his father was the janitor and where his family lived until he was two years old. Acclaimed as both a novelist and filmmaker, he writes in French and has published eight books now widely translated, including Le Jeu de Roy, which was awarded the prestigious French Prix de Flore in 2010. An adaptation of his novel, L'Armée du Salut, was his first feature film released in 2014, screened at major festivals around the world and hailed by the New York Times as giving the Arab world its first on-screen gay protagonist. Abdelatea made history in 2006 by coming out in his country where homosexuality is illegal. His commitment to the defense of homosexuals in Muslim countries has made him one of the most prominent Arab writers of his generation, both a literary transgressor and cultural paragon, according to Interview Magazine. Taya has lived in Paris since 1998. Colm Tabin is the author of nine novels, including The Blackwater Lightship, The Master, winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, Brooklyn, winner of the Costa Book Award, The Testament of Mary, and Nora Webster, as well as two short story collections and Mad, Bad, Dangerous to Know, a look at three 19th century Irish authors. He is the Irene and Sidney B. Silverman Professor of the Humanities at Columbia University. Three times shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, Tabine lives in Dublin and New York. Abdella and Colm, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. What a treat. Thank you so much for having me, for having us. I am so happy to talk to you, both of you from Paris. It's already nighttime here. And I send you all the warm kisses I have in me to you there <laughs> in America. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Abdullah. That's so sweet. It's been it's been a long. We've been discussing doing this event for many many months now. So I'm I'm so glad we're finally here. Me too. I'm so glad and so to be with Colm again and to be able to discuss and to say some, I hope, inspiring words to him first because it's an honor for me to be with him, and to all the people who will listen to us. Wonderful. So, Abdella, do you want to start us off with just a short reading from the book to give our listeners a taste? Yes, Avik, with great pleasure. I just wanted to say first that my English is not very well, but I will do my best. And I write in French language, as you said, but 
even French language is not my, my language. My first, my real language is Arabic. I was born and raised in an Arabic family in Morocco. So uh, until now, even when I write in French, it, there is still this little bit of strangeness. There is something still strange to me to, to put something that is not my real uh, language, not my body language, if I, if I say. So forgive me if I make some mistakes. I read the two first pages from this, A Country for Dying. He died young, 56 years old, that's young, right? It's the average age in Morocco, I know, the life expectancy. That's what they call it. But he, my little father, gentle and furious, he didn't have time for anything. Not to live well, not to die well. It happened quickly, barely two years. One day he fell, a collapse, a faint, tremors. What's happening in his body? We brought him to the public hospital in Rabat, the capital. He stayed there for four months, and then we brought him back in his house, our house, our little place, our can of sardines with red chilies. At a first floor that was relatively clean, thanks to our mother, who was both messy and super manic, and the second floor that was well constructed but still unfinished. Rooms without doors, without paint. A cement-colored decor for a life to come, a future to build when once money started falling from a permanently bright blue sky. That's where we put him, our father, where we slowly forgot him ignored him. It was my mother, of course, who made all the decisions. She'll never admit it. The doctors said that she had no protect, that she had to protect the children, distance them from possible contagion, separate them from the father's sick body. It was because they didn't know what was going on, these heartless, quakes. The order had to be executed. End of story. My mother doesn't want to talk about it anymore. What happened in the past is in the past. Those are her words about her own past, not ours, not mine. I said nothing. The idea of protesting didn't even cross my mind. I saw everything, followed everything. A living father, still young, whom they decided to exile in his own house one day. And I keep, and I keep on breathing, sleeping, dreaming each night of Alal of, and his big cock. Imagine it in great detail. Just above the room where I slept, amidst the bodies of my many sisters who hadn't yet married, there was my father, alone, a room that was too big, with no bed, three 
le tigre blankets placed on top of each other served as his living space where he could continue to be sick hope hope for recovery the final rest thank you this is zahira speaking it's not me but it's her and me it's the same thing like always with me i cannot hesitate but to put um, everything i experience in life uh, to enrich the the characters that's the only way i can do literature and writing to put what i know what i what enters in me and to give it to in, in the words this is zahira speaking she is a moroccan prostitute she lives in paris she is now kind of old she can't be she is not hot anymore in the prostitution market of paris among the clients and other prostitutes and now that she is more than 40 years old and she knows that france is not going to save her or to save immigrants like her and she is disenchanted she is disappointed but still she is she she keeps dreaming and while dreaming she remembers uh, and that's what i just read her father the, the last years of her father and how he was above her and she she listens she didn't see it she listens the noises of the last days and months of her father going away passing away and of course she feels guilt because she he was there only in this in, above her in this in the first in the second floor and she didn't go to to see him or to talk to him so the noises the last noises of her the body of the father are coming back to her in paris in exile where she is finished as a prostitute in paris suddenly the, those echoes of noises when she was still very young girl are coming back to her that's the the beginning of the novel mm. i think this is such a beautiful way to start the novel because it sets up um the kind of central conflict which is not necessarily between characters but it's between these small sort of can of sardine spaces that they have to live their lives within and then the the large all-encompassing dream worlds that they project themselves into. Um, so I want, I want to ultimately give this conversation over to Colm to conduct, but before, before I do that, I wanted to ground us um, in the space and time that we're all in. We're in this Zoom room together, this small space, but we are very far apart in physical distance. Um, Abdella, could you just tell us um, where you are, like, physically the room you're in and what is outside your window um outside my window it's paris in the night time <laughs> um, and people um, going back to of, and dealing with whatever stress and they they feel and they have now every day i live in paris now i am in paris i am in teeny tiny studio uh, in the middle of paris the neighborhood of belleville the subway station Périnée and uh, I have been like this like most of my time now since all this Covid um, 
uh, started. The only thing that is changing the, since now six weeks is that I wrote a play that is called uh, Like the Sea, My Love, Comme la, Comme la Mer, Mon Amour. And the, the actress and me, we are uh, doing, I don't know, the mise-en-scene. We are, because we are going both to play it in April next year in Paris. So I see this actress, Boutaina Elfakek, uh, with whom I wrote the play. Uh, and it's, uh, so I see her every day with distance and mask and we rehearsal the play because we both play in the play. We are both actors and we are both uh, directors of this play. It's teeny tiny project, but it's very close to my heart. So I am alone and not alone at the same time. And I can still smile and be very crazy. That's, 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 that's still a good, I still have that capacity on a daily basis. <laughs> Colm, where are you in space and what's outside of your window right now? Um, I, I'm in Los Angeles. Um, I'm in Highland Park. And uh, outside the window is the sky. I mean, it's a big blue California sky, some trees. And uh, I suppose it's called winter, but it sure doesn't look like winter if you're Irish. <laughs> I think we're sharing the same sky right now, Colm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Colm, let me hand it off to you to, to get into the nitty gritty. But um, I just wanted to say, Abdullah, I loved this novel. It was a, a beautiful, beautiful read. And I really hope our listeners pick it up. Um, Abdullah, can I just ask you at the beginning? how this novel began or what the inspiration for the characters was? Oh, the inspiration, uh, I found it in the first days I arrived in France, in Paris, in 1999, when I moved here and I was, I mean, full of hopes of the little Moroccan invading Paris and he will get whatever he wants. I had no money or nothing, but I, I did still have those romantic ideas about France and Paris and and I will do the war in needed. And one day I went, I, I needed to, to have a bank account. And that was very complicated. They didn't want to give me a bank account in a bank and because I didn't have all the, the papers. And when while I was uh, leaving the, the bank agency, on the stairs of the bank, there was a, Mar a Moroccan woman, so old, like she was on, on the floor and no one was paying attention to her. And this woman, it was obvious that she was a um, prostitute and she was looking like physically like my mother. And here, like in the first days of me here in Paris, I saw like uh, an image of a future, of a possibility that of failure and at the same time, uh, this woman was looking like my mother physically. I didn't speak to her, but I remember telling myself one day I have to save her in a way or another to, to talk about her and to make something about her. That was in 1999 and it took me maybe four, uh, 12 years in order to, to find the right, uh, the right uh, energy to, to write about him. 
The book um, can, contains a number of voices. They're, they're not necessarily competing voices, but each of them has a different texture. It is as though one voice, almost in the theatre, or in a web of storytelling, um, in a in a Sherizad sort of weaving of stories, one story will give way to the other, one voice to the other, that, that, that it captures not necessarily one consciousness, but the consciousness of a city, or the consciousness of how these encounters, that the, that the reader knows there's another voice going to come after this voice, that voices, one voice will, will, will never be, one voice will never be enough. Exactly. And this is coming not from me. It's a, it's a literary decision, yes, that I made. But at the same time, I feel like I didn't have in, even to think about it that much because these echoes of voices, these voices are coming from all the bodies I see every day of people somehow like me or leaving the exile or falling down, no one paying attention to them. And... And because I am an immigrant and because I am what I am, these people, I feel like I hear them. And actually, I do hear them. I do hear their voices and their, and their, and their stories. Even, I don't need even to speak to them. Just the body, like even, for instance, in the subway, when I take the, the, the here in Paris, like all these people, they are uh, frozen. They don't like, like, maybe there are some, terrorists or attacks that will happen soon next to them, but still from that position of being frozen and being silent and being closed, a lot of things come out. A lot of things come out from that position that I hear. So it's this circulation of bodies and, uh, and, and, and white French people, but not only white French people, all these other people Immigrants coming from all over the world to, the, to Paris, imagining that they will find salvation here, but it's something else that is happening to them and to them and to me. Your, your book is political, and we'll come to that in a moment. Mm. Um, and it deals with the relationship between Morocco and France, or the relationship between people living in Paris and the city itself but it's also filled with the texture of life, with things that belong to memory. With, for example, there's a passage that I think is the best description I've had, and I think anyone of my generation knows it. What it was like when you were young to watch adults smoking and the different ways they held cigarettes. And it's only a child can notice. And I don't think it's something you can imagine. I think it's something you can remember. And then you can give it to another character. It goes, this is the passage. There are people who smoke with arrogance, distance, selfishness, not you. Not you with your cheap cigarettes. I have the taste of them in me, in my nostrils, my tongue, my throat. You smoke three, bra three brands, poor people brands, of course. You started with the Douglas, 10 years before I was born. In the mid eighties, you switched to favorites. In 1990, just after the month of Ramadan that caused you so much suffering that you didn't care for, you switched to Casas or Casablanca. You had no love for that city, too noisy, too busy, but you adored its cigarettes. Now, you know, that belongs to the very core of fiction of evoking a world, of finding something that no one else has 
registered, but everyone knows. I just wonder if you could give us an account of the source of this. Well, I think you as a writer, you can totally relate to this, of course, because whatever there are things that you pay attention to consciously in the present time, and that there are all these things that you realize one day that they are in you in in very detailed way, layered way, and you remember them through the time that is past and through some truths that you don't even uh, realized while experiencing it. You see what I mean by this? Like that's maybe this is a definition actually of writing. That's the process and the energy and the courage to do it reveals all these layers and these memories. And uh, the literature and Zahira here in this novel benefits from, from this this experience that is me as a writer and as a body, I do have in me without me totally aware of it completely. But since I do have this arrogance saying I am a writer, <laughs> by doing it, the things come out. This, this, I don't know, this feeling and physical and sensual, sensual uh, feeling of remembering. It's not only something intellectual, it is the physicality of it. Yes, because, because I think this is something that happens to Irish writers in relation to England. That, you know, you, you know you're somehow or other on the periphery with a very different history to theirs. But when you come to read Charles Dickens or Jane Austen or a contemporary novel, the novel matters more than the politics. The actual felt life in the book is something shared rather than different. So when I'm talking about this passage with the cigarettes, it really comes, it really reminds me of Proust. In other words, it's a, it's a novelist who has been paying attention to the, to the tradition of the novel, that you can come from the periphery, from Morocco, as I come from Ireland, but somehow or other, once you're writing, you can belong to a much bigger world or, or a much and more complex world than the simple business of being different and from a, from a smaller place. Exactly, and somehow I feel like this is my duty as a writer to, to bring all these details of life of other people, the poor people, my family, my sisters, and all these years of struggles and people insulting us, insulting my mother, and she trying to fight and screaming, and uh, fighting with my father and my father enraging because he didn't have uh, the, the, the enough words in him. So the only thing he could protest and engage in war with her, my mother and the world was the cigarettes, the way. And she, and the, the, I swear like the, 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 the smoke was saying everything, the smokes, the smoke coming out from his cheap cigarettes was saying everything. The, that it was defending him, were defending him, the smoke were defending him, saying his interiority, even his dirtiness, what is in him, and at the same time, portraying of him something that is for me, that I cherish so much, extremely romantic and tender. And my father was an, an Arab man, and Muslim man, but he was not the caricature or the cliche of Arab man. He could not fight, he could not do the war 
uh, he could not go to beg other people for money in order to give food to the children. The woman, my mother had to do it. So she took the power because of that. She had to do the, the, this work instead of him. The only thing left to him is to express this falling down, this depression, and, but at the same time, finding a way to express it through the cigarettes, through the smoke. And with the smoke, there is everything in him coming out of him and entering us, me. Yeah, if I were to do a book, uh, an anthology of um, writing about smoking, this passage, anthology about writing about memory, this passage. But if I were to do an anthology about a new way of looking at cities, that in other words, in all, especially the European cities, but also the American cities, there, there is a way that people experience the city, which has nothing to do with the tourist posters or any images we have of the city as, as a place to visit. Now, there's a crucial scene in this book, which I think is incredibly moving and beautifully done, which is the interest that the Iranian has in going to see the Jardin de Luxembourg. Yeah. And the fact that, uh, that the prostitute, our protagonist, hasn't been there, has been living in a different Paris, a Paris apart from these, these central moments. And there's a description of their journey there. And I think it's a really, it's, it's a wonderful moment in the book because it's both intensely political. This is what being marginalized feels like, looks like, that there's something named, and everyone knows the name of it and you have not seen. But also it's done naturally, it's done, as, as an adventure for both of them. It's, it's not as though they're, they're, they're behaving politically. They're, they're, they're behaving instinctively. They just want to see this. But for the reader, you go, this is, the, this is a Paris that has not been described. And where actually, uh, when you see it in French movies or other French books written by other French writers, these characters or people, Arabs or immigrants or Africans, like they, they don't belong to such places like Jardin du Luxembourg, uh, Place Saint-Sulpice, uh, these French chic places that is only for elites and intellectual, some intellectual um, uh, people. And here is this uh, gay um, character, Iranian gay character, who is forced to, to leave his country. But he says he doesn't, he doesn't hate his country. He was forced to leave it. And he realized at the age of 23 that because he asks for an asylum in France, in Britain, that he will might never go back to this, to his own country where he was born, where all his memory, everything in that is him, he will never be able to see it again. So he, here, he, here he is in the middle of Paris and Paris cannot pay attention to someone like that. Like, Paris and France always asks you, ask you to go to them. They don't see you. You have to go to them, speak their language, master the French language, be aware of the, the big French culture, French cinema, new wave, and also. If you know those things, maybe you will be accepted. But if you don't, but if you have no idea about these things, somehow. You don't exist. So Zahira, the prostitute, she finds uh, Mushtaba, um, the Iranian gay, in Paris, and he literally, what he is falling down, like fainting, 
So she takes his body, trying to save him, trying to do with him what she could not do with her father when he was dying. And uh, Mushtaba, because he dreamed about Paris when he was still in Iran, and he dreams about these big names of France and Paris, Le Jardin du Luxembourg. I mean, you, you see it in so many French films, you see it in, in so many French classic books. So he wants to see it. And he invites with him Zahira, who is working as a sex as a prostitute, but only for immigrants. She, she has no client as white French people. So he invites her to go with, with, with him. And yes, it is political, as you said, Colm, but I didn't want to put it like, uh, look how, yeah. uh, how sociologically I am as a writer aware. Look, uh, look to what I am doing here, the transgressor that I am. I just wanted for both of them, Mushtaba, the Iranian, and Zahira, the Moroccan prostitute, something beautiful to happen for them while going into, into this white neighborhood, very chic in Paris. I didn't care actually about criticizing them. I wanted both of them, Zahira and Mushtaba, to make them live something beautiful between them. That's the most important thing for me. Yes, I, I think that's really important to, to emphasize in the book that um, the background is political and sometimes politics nourishes the book. But the main thing in the book is voice and the main thing in the book is character and that the characters have a life apart and way above any set of political constraints on them. Um, I was brought up, and I think you were too, and I wonder if you could talk about it in a house full of women. And I just wonder how that has affected the way you can write these characters in this book. I feel a column that I became a writer because all these women, these women voices, uh, around me when I was little are in me because me we are nine children there is the big brother six sisters and me and my little brother so the big brother he was already so intellectual so arrogant they gave him his room and for the rest of the family like we were the mother six sisters and the little brother and me nine people in one teeny tiny teeny tiny room so until the age of 17 I lived uh, and with them and experiencing what is the, the bodies of women, what is the, the dreams of a woman. These women were my sisters, my mothers, the screaming, the cheating, the, the transgressions, not to respect the law or religion or, or the neighborhood, but at the same time keeping repeating again and again the same stories and the same dreams. So the fact that I was little body, little Abdullah, next to this, this grown woman, I think it's all in me. I feel lucky in that way that I was I, I there and it happened they were talking nonstop and they were like, at that time there was no television, luckily for me, there was no television. So we had the space and the time and the, the boring time, if I might, I might say, like this time when we are bored and in order not to feel bored, we were obliged to speak to each other and to tell each other something rather than going to something else like today, I mean, with all the social media. So they were, they were speaking, they were telling things. Uh, yes, in, in a little room, not in outside the house, but me, I experienced that 
and for me that was that is actually the definition of freedom because the moroccan government could tell us you are uh, poor people you should not say this you should not do that you are good muslims you could good arabs etc etc but in that teeny tiny room these rules and the king and the rich people we didn't care about them it was only us uh, angry hungry uh, fighting and sleeping in, in next to each literally into each other actually because it was nine bodies in 15 meter square room like we were sleeping on the floor so the writer i became now i read because when i was little i felt that they were really much more intelligent than me they had much more knowledge of life than me and i feel like i all these experiences i took it i stole i stole it and i made it into something literature but to be honest i have to recognize this depth to them. So the characters, Zaira and the other characters in the book are isolated people. They're down on their luck, they're lonely, they're in danger. But the important thing in the book, which you've done, is to give their voices a sort of energy, to give them life. I mean, a life that goes, soars way above their, their actual day-to-day -day circumstances, that, that there's a sort of energy in them. That's that's the energy coming 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 from the poor years, the hungry years I lived with my mother and my sisters. You mean I mean in, in not eleven people in teeny tiny house hungry? That's something you cannot forget because at that time when you are when you have eleven hungry stomachs, you have whatever your identity is, gay or straight, whatever you have, suddenly there is something that unifies you. And that's something I can never forget, that unity of bodies hungry. And that's where I, where I uh, but when I say hungry, I mean the hunger that gives energy. Because this is really strange. It's when we don't have nothing that we can do something. It's when we are, we feel failure, failed people, that suddenly we can wake, stand up and do something. It's when a woman is being beaten that suddenly she started screaming and uh, calling all the neighborhood on this man beating her. You see what I mean? This con apparent contradiction that I experienced so many, many, many years that I tried to put in these characters in the novel, uh, A Country for Dying. What is more important, not to say the poverty, but to say the life, to say life, how we, we are we are nothing but you are living beings and i always want to be in that i always been i always want to be in life and i always want to be the my literature actually full of life just like me now speaking with my hands my like i wanted to be like <laughs> I wanted to emphasize. I mean, I wanted to emphasize this this idea of passages in the book that are, that are so filled with texture, with the strange business of memory, and and the general um, texture of the book being so filled with voice, so filled with life. Because I want to go on to ask you that the, mm. that the portrait you paint of the relationship between Morocco um, and and, uh, and Algeria and and France is very bleak. It's it's um, that, that, that there's almost no one in the book who comes to France to do anything other than service the French 
in some very underground and, and punishing sort of way, that, that the picture of, of that is very bleak, including at the very end of the book, where, yes. where you find there's a sort of mystery figure at aunt who's been missing, and you find, well, she, she too has been involved in, in her body has been used to serve us the French, to keep the French comfortable. Well, that's, you are speaking about the French colonialism. Yes. It is really weird to me because me, I, 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 I choose to, 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 to learn French and I write in French. Like, this is like I am giving French language and France as a country a big honor. I am coming from my poverty as an Arab boy, only speaking in Arabic during many, many years and mastering French and writing in French but yet not totally recognized as a writer, French writer, or like there is some distinction somehow in the air. But now, but the people, they don't see the, 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 the efforts I made. Like I am writing in your language. This is something huge as I am doing to you. So when you realize that this, when I realized this, I started to rethink everything. And this happened to me uh, I think in 2009, when I woke up and I realized uh, uh, this colonialism, French colonialism, still going on in the lives of so many immigrants in, 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 in France. And actually all the people doing, doing the bad jobs and all these Arab people uh, put in, in somehow in prisons in, in the suburbs and all these people who France brought in the 50s in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s in France to rebuild France after the Second World War, and at the same time treated very badly. And yet, it's France keeping, until now, asking these people to integrate into the French system, meaning becoming French as France is deciding it. So all these political ideas are in this book, but again, true uh, uh, bodies who are experiencing failures, but these failures are not the end of the day for them. It's not the end of the day, because it's not because you cannot make a living in France that it's the end of your life. Yeah. I mean, you can, I mean, if you, if you are a good beggar and you can have a good song and you are in the streets, the people will give you money if you are a good, bigger singing the right melody they will give you the, the money in nigeria in cameroon in kenya like life go, go but somehow there is this idea here in france and in the west in general that the real freedom is here the real freedom the real emancipation is only here happening in france so what about all these other immigrants exploited by the same system that is saying that we represent freedom, we represent emancipation. So this novel is an answer to these um, to these values, self-proclaimed in France through the lives and the voices of people failing, falling, but yet but still so much alive, so much alive. Yeah, I mean, I mean, part of the pleasure of the book is that Zaira is not portrayed by you as a victim because she has too much to say. She's too much going on. She has too many memories. There, there's, there's an extraordinary amount of sort of felt life in her. 
there's just there's one other thing I want to ask you about, which is um, the book is very tough. It's a very, the very tough images of France, of contemporary Paris. It, you know, as you say, it, it, there are images of contemporary Paris that are so chic and so fashionable. And this actually is the real world. This is the world that's left out of fiction. It's the world left out of the, you know, the television news covers it only when there's trouble. Yes. And um, you don't get images of it, all except when there's trouble. But that you also, in the, book, in the book, deal with a very difficult question for Morocco, which is probably something that is not aired very much. And I'll just read you a passage where this man says, um, this, is, this, this is the Moroccan, I'm nothing but a slave, is that it? A Negro, a Nazi bambala, colored, the, the tour guy, an invisible, less than a man. And he's talking about the idea of color of degrees of brownness, blackness, of, of he, he, later on he refers to himself as a black, as the black man. I am black, Moroccan and black, Moroccan, poor and black. Um, um, and I, I just wonder if you could talk to us about that as a drama. In other words, it's another drama in the book. Yes. I mean, don't deal with it politically. Again, he's not a victim. He's just talking about his, what his life is going to be like. It's, it's filled with, as I say, this image, this idea of felt life. If you could just talk to us about that. Yes, his name is Alal, Alal. And he comes as out of nowhere in the book, actually. And this is a, a technique that I love in, in general literature, that, that something happens without what is behind is preparing it. I love this idea just like out of nowhere a voice comes out yes. and imposes its voice and what she ha it has this voice has has to say so alal was the big love of zahira when she was still in morocco but the whole society of morocco and the whole family of zahira failed him and because he's black he he cannot marry a white woman even when that woman is poor and maybe much more poor than him. And through this, this uh, situation of Alal Zahira, um, I try just to say that um, there is the tragic life maybe happening, tragedy happening to Zahira, but there is, there is always other tragedies happening. There is always other people uh, living uh, much, much more complicated um, uh, lives and struggles that we are not totally aware uh, um, of, uh, uh, of it. So yes, Zahira is uh, failing and trying to survive in Paris, but even she, she did something wrong when she was still in Morocco. She rejected a black man that was a Moroccan black man that was uh, in love with her and she go, she went without saying anything with this racism against black people in Morocco with this, another exclusion. You see what I mean? So you are totally right, Colin. It's not about being victim. There is not, it's not only one person saying something. It's like inside of the body of Zahira, there is the voice of Alal waiting to come out. And it suddenly it comes out and saying, almost the same story in another way uh, another uh, that's something that's a technique a literal technique that I, I i love like a voice inside of another voice a body doing something not only for him but for another body you see what i mean 
Um, Abdullah, I'm a big admirer of this book, and, and I want to ask you um, about literary antecedents, about where you come from as a, as a as a novelist, and and it strikes me, you know, you're talking about that idea of a voice coming out of nowhere, just entering the book, taking over the pages for a while, and going away again, going to Stockholm, or you know, on their way to France, or um, people transforming themselves. That I, sometimes I'm feeling I, I'm in I'm in a picaresque tradition. I'm in that I'm I could be in Cervantes you know, where they move along, they go to another village and all the people they met in the last village disappear and some new people come in and it isn't as though the plot is going to be circular, it's going to be actually, uh, you know, it's going to be a, a journey. And also there's the whole Thousand One Nights, the whole um, Sherazade business of, you know, another story inter interrupts the previous story and it is very close to the idea of nine or ten people in a room and everyone, everyone interrupting everyone, no single story being told, and someone starting a story to find that story leads to another story told by somebody else, so that you're not dealing with a sort of circular form of the novel, where, you know, if, if a character appears, that character will come back later to be an important figure in the plot. The plot for you has to do with voice, has to do with, with almost competing voices, but also layers of voices. Sorry, that's a long question, but <laughs> you're absolutely right, and I feel so happy that you got this because this is everything I'm doing in literature. All the books I wrote are voices, are voices taking literature and imposing themselves to us, to me, to the readers, to the friends, to the everyone who is reading them. I love this idea that someone is taking the place where the, whether you like it or not, the voice imposing something that is in him or in her to you. And at certain point, you have no other option but to keep listening. This idea of uh, that me, it's not only me. There, is, there are the other voices in me. I cannot say that I'm, I, am, I am only Abdelataya. It's impossible. It's, there is not only one thing in me, not one voice. Even when I speak daily, I feel and I see clearly who is speaking through me. This idea of being possessed, the possessions, the genes, the, 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 the genes, you know, the, the, not the spirits, the genes, because the spirits is something else in the European culture. It's the genes. The Arabs and the Muslims believe that there are human beings and there are the genes. And some people are possessed by genes. I do feel like that. And I do feel like sometimes, like this, you know, the, the, in, the, in the Arab classic poets uh, before the, the Islam have arrived, there, is, there was this, uh, the poets who were hanging their poems on the Kaaba in Mecca. And that's a big literary, literary genre in the Arab world. These poems, they all start by poets wandering in the deserts, listening to the wind, to the voices of the wind to the voices and in the wind, there are the voices. And in the voices, there are the memories. So it's all like that. I feel like I have this ability of hearing the wind, if I might say, which is very Cervantes-like as well. Well, Cervantes, Spain is not far from Morocco. It's the same, the same, it's the same head, the same visions, the same images. And this idea that life, the world, is nothing but voices struggling into each other. 
that's something that I cherish so, so, so very much. And not to be polite why, while you are speaking and writing and doing literature, like in real life. No politeness. I'm not French. I am not going to be polite. I, voila. Thank you very much, Abdel. Um, I really admire the book, and it's, um, it's really wonderful to hear you. Thank you so much, Thomas Cohn, for your question and understanding. Thank you both. Um, this has been just an absolute delight to listen to. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, Colm, thank you for your beautiful questions. And Abdullah, thank you for answering with all of these beautiful hand gestures I wish our audience could see. <laughs> You'll just have to imagine them. Um, before we go, uh, and I'm sad to do it, um, Colm, did you have any last questions for Abdullah or anything else you wanted to say? Um, yes, yes, I do. Um, and I can wave my hand, I'm waving my hands too. And what I'm interested in is, if, if you were to adapt this for the theatre, and of course, as you're reading it, you can see these, these especially two of, or th well, three are made for actresses, that actresses would give anything to play these parts. And these competing voices, these different figures coming out onto the stage, you can see the novel not only as a, in the picaresque tradition, but actually as a piece of theatre, as, as allowing for voices. The question, of course, is what fun it would be to mix Arabic and French, to actually have one of them speaking, you know, like notice the written word, then it's French on the page. But then the spoken word, what would you do with the spoken word in a theatre? What, what language would you use if they were to speak? I, I, uh, if, like, for instance, if it's in Paris, if I do this, this uh, play uh, with this uh, novel, yes. I would find an actor who will mix the two languages. Yeah. And, like, even maybe sometimes do, like, maybe three minutes, five minutes speaking in Arabic, without the people, the public understanding everything. Yeah. And then going back to French. That would be brilliant. That would be Just brilliant. this idea, yeah. Arabic language, or another language actually, being told, uh, being, uh, I mean, coming out from an yeah. actor in front of people who don't understand this, but at the same time understanding something. Yeah. Just, I just want to end by um, just saying two words, just two words to you, two words, and just the first thing comes into your head, respond. Isabella Gianni. Isabella Gianni, I adore her. I am fascinated with her. I, am, I venerate her, actually. Isabella Gianni's father was Algerian, and her mother was German. And Isabella Gianni, in her way, is extremely engaging, physically. She, when she screams, she's the most beautiful actress screaming. When she cries, we adore that. When she is, when she is the over the top, we love that. She, Isabella Jenny has this ability of being, giving so much and at the same time still sublime. It's the opposite of Isabel Huber, who she gives, Isabel Huber gives you the impression that she, she gives less in order to give more. Isabella Jenny, she gives everything. She gives everything. And I think through the way, in the way she, she interprets the roles, 
there is something Arabic there. And she's a character in this novel. Exactly, exactly. And she is more than a character, she is like a goddess in this novel. In this French, this French country, failing all these characters, they, they are worshipping the body and the images of Isabel Adjani as someone that is saying some truth about France that France doesn't say yet. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the question, Colm. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. We, couldn't, we, couldn't, we couldn't go on without talking about that. I, we cannot speak about this book without speaking about Isabel Adjani in it. <laughs> All right. Abdullah, thank you so much for sharing your work with our listeners. Uh, again, please pick up a copy of A Country for Dying. You will not regret it. Um, Abdullah, is there anything else you would like to say to our listeners before we say goodbye? I, I just want to say that uh, to all the people that, uh, I, mean, I mean, I never dreamed that my book will be translated into, um, in Amer into English in America or something like that. And this is, I think, my fifth book uh, translated into English in America. And I, I don't know, I am always moved that to see that there are some people interested in me in America. And I just want to say thank you to all of them. Thank you to you, Madin Skylight. Thank you to Colum and to all this support. Because when I was a little, I never dreamed about this, that I will be speaking with Colm, Taibin. And actually, I didn't even know about you at that time, Colm. <laughs> That's just as well. <laughs> so join, join, join the crowds. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you with really all my heart to all these people who are supporting me in America and reading my books. That's something that I really cherish and value. Thank you so much. All right. Well, okay. Thank you. Take I care. We're all done. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.